sound funny because I'm going to sound like I'm an actual real host. <laughs> you are. <laughs> Coming up on Verse Chorus First, I get to sit down with one of my favorite voices of all time. And if you don't know, you're going to know. That's next on episode 31. To tell the story of how it starts and where it takes us To the end my daydreams been Just before I get the pleasure of your acquaintance Why do we even try to fight the undertow? To a deeper love we know We're standing on the edge Right next to ecstasy Baby, come follow me Just Welcome to Verse Chorus Verse I am David Liston and here we are Episode 31 I am pumped I'm going to tell you why that voice that you just heard on the intro, that sultry, captivating, drink a scotch, shed a tear voice, that is Emily Braden. And she's here. Emily, how are you? Hi, I'm good. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to I'm happy to be talking to you. How are you? I'm awesome. I'm excited for this. Me too. She's a jazz blues extraordinaire. She's keeper of dog tags. <laughs> <laughs> we got history. We definitely have history. I know. We've <laughs> known each other for a while. Before we get into that, the song that you heard coming into the intro is a song that probably not many people have heard besides me, Neener, 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 because it's not out yet. It's called Swell, and it's off of an album that she is currently working on, mixing? Mastering on Sunday, but it's it's been in the works for a few years. It's one of those that has not been an easy birth, but it's being mastered on Sunday, so it's getting there. Release is very tentative at this point, right? With COVID and everything? It is, yeah. I mean, it's so hard to figure out sort of a traditional trajectory for an album at the moment and plan for that. The goal for me with the new album, I was so excited to start, it was to get it out there as a springboard for touring. Yeah. And as we know, that's sort of difficult right now. But I do have sort of a finite goal of I want to get it out before the end of the year, which feels a bit rushed. But at the same time, there's kind of no rules anymore for album releases. So I'm trying. I'm trying. Good. <laughs> this song, I mean, I'd ask you what it's about, but it's if you listen to it, it's pretty <laughs> damn obvious. <laughs> right? I mean... You're not wrong. It's pretty obvious. I feel like I'm one of those adults that's just stayed very connected to my imagination. I'm a total water baby. So as you heard, it's sort of like an aquatic themed journey through attraction and sensuality and all that stuff. So I always say it's it's kind of about the healing properties and also the erotic power of water. I actually did write that song in many bodies of water. I remember being in Florida writing it. I remember being in Thailand writing a piece, which is sort of why it sounds like a suite, I think. I couldn't stop the water idea just kept coming through and it actually was inspired by a dream I had a dream about this woman that was telling me about like what it feels like to be immediately attracted to someone and then she was like everything in my body like moved towards that person and just sort of you know so I was like okay all right all right brain all right subconscious I'll go that with that is so cool I'm gonna we're gonna talk more about the new songs later on down the line but I'm gonna say right now Emily just sent me the songs and it's so fucking good Emily it's seriously, it's so good. Oh. I was sitting at work and I would just stop and be like, this is, this is stupid. But then my coworker would be like, what are you talking about? I was like, nothing. I'm just, li- just mind your own business. 
Um, you can find a version of Swell on Emily Braden's YouTube, which she did on a, it's on a Brooklyn rooftop. Yes. Where was that filmed? There's an organizer who, who started something called Panda Music, and that was in Williamsburg on the roof of his, his building, actually. And he has this um, amazing oh. Brazilian um, fan, fan base contingent. So it's always full and it's always a party. It was started during the pandemic as a way to um, make live music. Is that the same piano player, drummer, bass that are in the actual produced track? Actually, yes. Yeah, it is. It's um, Misha Piatigorsky, Danton Bowler, and Rudy Royston. Uh-huh. I recognized him. Rudy Royston. Ridiculous. Who, I mean, he, good he just... God. <laughs> Huh. Rudy's the drummer and it's just yeah I mean no every, all of them I feel like so honored to be able to play with such um world-class people and Misha's my musical partner so we work together a lot yeah I was gonna say a lot of the stuff that I've seen you in he's yeah he's we right write there. we write music it's, together I've known you for since we were what like 10 years old or something yeah, like that yes when did you start actually singing singing i remember hearing you in choirs as early as like fifth grade or and stuff but when did you actually start really singing singing this question gets asked a lot and i was always like i don't really know i was always a music lover so i just constantly was singing along to things and my taste was as a kid like it was whatever it was radio songs or whatever but my grandmother sort of like gifted me the classics that's sort of I guess a little bit different than a lot of kids it's like I was listening to B.B. King and Carol King and Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughn when it I was like I don't know seven or eight <laughs> I was definitely a choir kid and being out in the northwest like that music is not necessarily in jazz soul blues not necessarily like in the water you know I didn't have an uncle that played the organ at church or something yeah. And so I um I sought it out really specifically like our days at the record exchange and ended up turning into my voice actually sort of formed my sound and my voice and I remember in high school I had a choir solo on a gospel tune I think it was you must be thinking of black coffee and cigarettes yeah that gospel that tune, gospel tune. <laughs> that was the other one but no I think it was like um sweet little Jesus boy or something and I was like whoa I felt this energy come through me and just realized that out of all that listening I had sort of become a vocalist I was lucky enough to you know cut my teeth jazz wise around Emily, we were in a couple of the same choirs. I got to share stage with her a couple of times before any of us really knew anything. <laughs> At all. <laughs> no. I mean, even then, it was very clear to everybody else that you were just kind of this comet that we were watching from Earth. It, you were just going to, you were going to go do stuff. Wow. It, it was so fun to watch. And as you grow up, you, you think back to that stuff and you think it was just so fun to watch and to you know, every couple of years check in and be like, oh, look what she's doing. Aww. Now that I'm like a grown person and sort of looking back at the naivety and the, the sort of big dreamer part of us. I mean, I was lucky, first of all, super lucky to have supportive people in my family because nobody ever told me like, what the hell are you thinking? Like, this cannot happen. Yeah. You cannot do this. I actually never had that. I didn't have people gas me up, but that, you know, they were like, are you sure? Do you really want to do this? But when I was making those decisions, like to move to um, Gresham, Oregon, to study music there, and then to move to Canada, to British Columbia, to study there, and then to move to New York, like I had almost like blinders on. It was like, this is what's happening. And I look back, I don't have that same sense of just, you know, anymore. I'm like, oh my God, what should I do now? I don't know. But back then <laughs> I was like, not, nah. I was, I had such a clarity about what I needed to do in order to follow the music that I loved. So I remember very specific little parts of his I remember when I remember when our director in high school Linda Schmidt gave you the black coffee 
it's hilarious because it was such a little, I mean, not little, we were in Boise, Idaho, but it was this very mm-hmm. Christian, a lot of God songs and a lot of Mormons in the <laughs> choir and stuff. Yes. And Linda Schmidt hands out black coffee. And I'm like, cause I'm a little bit less sheltered at that age than a lot of the other kids were. And I'm like, what the hell? Right. We can't, what are we doing? <laughs> And then you got up and <laughs> I didn't I didn't even think about this that coffee at that point was like as bad as coffee. Yeah, and cigarettes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Coffee was like illegal. Might as well be doing heroin. 80% of the people we were around. <gasps> I didn't even think I had not even thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> I remember standing there and watching you singing all the solo parts and everybody behind you <laughs> doing the background, the coffee and cigarettes. I'm like this is and praying. This is being like I can't that is so that funny. was the first time that I was really like, okay, so she's gonna end up in <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, it was such an interesting environment to study that music in, you know, to study black American music essentially in Boise, Idaho with the predominantly white choir and a white choir teacher. And it's unique. And I've sort of learned to embrace that experience that we had over the years as being really formative in my artistry and how I like approach the music because Then I move out here and it's like, you know, people who are really directly connected to the lineage and my mentor also, Louise Rose, who's like very directly connected. I do think it has really uh, given me maybe like a maybe humility or just I feel like I'm a student in the classroom, but I'm in like the back of the classroom and I'm cool with that. Yeah. Like, I'm cool with that. You know what I mean? I, I think about that growing up in Boise. And it's like we were listening to yes. Weezer and Cake and then like Ella Fitzgerald and, you know, and, and Joe Williams, like in the same car ride. And I think that's that's really cool. That was one of the moments when I knew, OK, because I when I was a kid, I was a little bit of a music elitist. <laughs> I was like, I just know more than everybody else does kind of thing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, just as kids are kids are idiots. And I remember <laughs> quote of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. I remember one of the first times that I hung out with you, I think we were at your house or something like that. And we were going through your CD collection and trying to figure out what to listen to. And I I remember being wowed by it, but I specifically remember seeing a Ted Hawkins CD. Yes. And being like, she knows Ted. Okay. So she's, she knows what's up. I just, I don't know why, but when I saw Ted Hawkins, I was like, holy shit. She knows what's up. I just want to point out (laughs) how much better your memory is than mine (laughs) right now because i'm like ah we went to high school together we had a great time like those details are far are far back in the memory yes so emily's music can currently be found mostly on youtube she's got a lot of youtube videos she does have an album on bandcamp called soul walk go to bandcamp get the album. We'll talk about that album later too. She's on Spotify as well. So, you know, go to Bandcamp, but she's also on Spotify. So follow (laughs) her there. She's big on Facebook. She has her own website, emilybraden.com. Go there because you can see where her tours are taking her. This is going to release sometime mid-September. So I think after that, your next shows will be in Philly. Yeah. The next one is in Philly um, and then back to Chicago at the end of October. The I want big on Facebook to be a t-shirt. I'm big on I'm Facebook. I'm big on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> She's also on Instagram at Songbody, so follow her there. We're going to get more into this. Before we do that, we got to get to the most important part of the night. What are we drinking? Yeah. Emily, what are you drinking tonight? I'm drinking gin and lemonade, and I'm already halfway through. Gin and juice. Yeah. You? <laughs> what kind of gin are you drinking? Tangeray is what we had here. Yay! <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
I'm drinking a Macallan single malt scotch. Get it. Because it's good night. Yeah. I'm celebrating hanging out with a dear old friend. So Aww. it's a Friday night. I'm going to get drunk on scotch, talk <laughs> yes. about some really good jazz. We're going to take a quick break, listen to another little ditty of Emily's, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk some more Emily Braden music. Softly, the light of day is fading. It's bleeding into evening. Your darkest thoughts awake me. You see the movement in the We're back with Emily Braden. The song that you just heard coming in is Superhero. What is this song about? So that is a Misha Piatigorsky composition that he actually has mm -hmm. released as an instrumental. And as we were talking about recording for the album, I always loved that tune. And I asked him if I could write a lyric to it and perform it. He was like, hell yeah, let's do it. So to me, um, Superhero, it's basically between the election. This was pre-pandemic, but... I guess mostly the election and just everything going on, global warming, you know, much more awareness from more people around like racism and yeah, and all of this stuff that's happening in the world. So it was basically the question of like, what is it to be a superhero to yourself and the people around you at this time in history? Like, what does that look like to really step up into your power and into your potential and also to kind of get off your butt politically speaking? And I feel like a lot more of my friends and my community have sort of stepped up, you know, going to rallies and, and learning what a consistent care about like anti-racism and pro LGBTQ and on all of those things, what that actually looks like in real time to really show up, you know? And so that's sort of what superhero yeah. was I about. I love that because I'm sick of seeing reposts on Facebook. If you want to do something, right. write a senator, go somewhere, yes. do something. That message got so lost with social media. And I, I really like that message. That song is so good it's so good the bass part the drums all the percussion in the entire song the notes that you're hitting in the chorus the constant like you think that it's going to transition into one chord and it goes into a whole different it's just oh my it's such a good song it really really is it's so well written that means the world that's yeah that's you know and misha has this really cool thing he's um russian jew born and raised in new york essentially in jersey i should say mm. the one thing i keep continually sort of being attracted to about his work is this classical undertone yeah like it's not even that under it's yeah. very much like the sort of drama of classical music and yeah, it's like this killing groove where these drums are going off. It's just really hitting. And I love the way he combines so many elements, but there's such a sophistication about it. Yeah. And, um, really, and that tune, really. I think that's why I liked it. But the, the drama, I think both he and I as songwriters really have connected on drama and intensity. I hope that as soon as you can, everybody, you download that song because it's, I'm, I could listen to that song all the time. I love it. Right on. Thank you for, thank you. <laughs> because I've been working on it for so long that I really, truly have just lost perspective. And that's, I think, true for most artists and their projects but oh, yeah i'm just like i don't even know about, i don't even know about this whole album like i get into that space sometimes you've been a professional 
musician for how long now? Yo, we got old. It just happened. It just happened. 20 years. Wow. I think I did my first gig. So I moved to Canada and I remember hand making the poster for the gig at Herman's and it was with Louise Rose and a couple other wonderful musicians. I was either 19 or 20. So we're definitely like really, really close to 20 years of doing this. That A, blows my mind. And B, it's been so interesting because as an independent artist, things just sort of roll into the next thing. Okay, I'm going to Idaho in June. I'm going to do some concerts there. And then in July, I'm going to be in New York and I have a gig at Birdland with this person. And then in Ju- and it's also a constant hustle, like to keep this thing afloat. But you feel so good yeah. because it's something that I'm so passionate about. Yes, it's hard work. And many times I'm like, this work is not the fun work. However, the singing makes it so worth it. And it's also like my social life and my party life and my nightlife and like my community and my political community. It's all sort of tied together. So it's been this really overall, like very joyful ride. And then the pandemic hit and it really, it gave me a second to pause and actually look Mm -hmm. at the cumulative effect of doing something so consistently for 20 years, both like being newly amazed by that and then on the other hand also being like sort of in the same way like if you're an athlete and you just run all the time but you know you haven't seen a physical therapist in a long time or you're like I don't need to stretch I know how to do this or I don't need to stretch that much or whatever so I feel like this pandemic was a major reset yeah and also brought a lot of things to the surface that I hadn't thought about being tired a lot of artists have been talking about like what are the things that you didn't do because you poured 99.9999 nine percent of yourself into this particular art form yeah. practicing learning how to practice again and like because most of my practicing has been done on the stage you know like I learn songs and I warm up for gigs but I was singing four to seven times a week so I was always pretty Ooh, much in shape shit. vocally and so when that stopped it was like okay how do I do this and it was also a like um I know I'm sorry I'm probably talking a ton more it's than, a podcast but, Emily that's the okay <laughs> we're supposed to do <laughs> okay good but I realized too um how much of my singing is connected connected to performance. Mm -hmm. It was interesting to observe some singers who just love to sit in their room for hours and sing sort of to themselves and like work these things out. And for me, it was almost always in a performative context. That's great. But also I do feel like I had lost a little bit of that element, that adolescent that just sings in my room just because I love to sing. I didn't sing for the first few months. I was hurt by not being able to perform. And I was obviously traumatized by like the rest of us by what was happening. But through the last year and a bit, I got a guitar. It was very therapeutic. Learning how to play Pennies from Heaven and I didn't know what time it was and yeah. a couple blues on the guitar and like singing to myself or just arpeggiating through chords, enjoying just singing just to sing, you know? When the pandemic started and apparently it's not stopping, right. which is really awesome. <laughs> I'm trying to get these questions out of the way, <laughs> the more depressing shit. No, it's all good. But with COVID, because like you said, you were all about live shows, clubs and things like that, mm-hmm. which your job was taken away from you. Fully. Probably is still really weird to even going back into it, especially right now with everything else coming back. But yes, was there a part of you that was like, I have to be done with this. I've been in New York for seven, eight years now. I need to find a nine to five job that's going to stick there. Or is it just part of you that says, no, I am a singer. It will work out. That's it. That's final. Maybe both. 
I've always made music, like we said, for 20 years. And I had part-time work when I came to New York City because it's New York City. And yeah. I did study Spanish. So I had my master's degree in Latin American studies. So any part-time job I had was not music-based. It was like translation-based. Um, I was doing bilingual interviews in a nursing home for a while. I ran a safer sex program through a harm reduction agency in the Heights, which is all Spanish speaking too. So literally lugging a suitcase full of condoms up and down the streets of Manhattan, (laughs) like talking about like, así se pone el condón, like this is how you put the condom on. Like that was my, you know, and working with drug users as a harm reduction agency. So like that was my sort of work experience here. And I quit the harm reduction agency I was maxing out. I couldn't do more with the music and I couldn't do more with the agency. Yeah. I was full-time music, just performing, making my money. And then the pandemic happened and sort of very quickly, especially because we weren't getting our unemployment here in the States. So I immediately, almost immediately started teaching Spanish lessons. Mm. I was not emotionally ready to teach vocal lessons. It takes a lot of emotional energy to facilitate that experience for people. Yeah. So I didn't start teaching vocal lessons until maybe May. And then I had steady, steady, steady work through all of 2020. But I've gone through every single thought about music and my relationship to it. I just posted yesterday like that I think about living somewhere else besides New York, but I don't know if I would know how to live somewhere else. New York is very tied to my sense of self as a professional. If I leave New York, does that say that I'm giving up on this sort of part of my self or career or my music, which I think logically I know is not true, but because the community here is so strong and it extends into so many parts of my life besides just the music making, I've been evaluating everything and I've absolutely had moments of being like, okay, maybe this is over. Like maybe this is the era, especially that it's gone on for such over a year, like not singing very much for a year. It takes an, it has an effect. No, it has an effect on your you know, on your voice, on your instrument. So to answer your question, sort of in short form, yes, I have considered maybe the pandemic is sort of a time of transformation and transition that will lead me to something else. But there's there's also also like my gut and my heart and my it's a spiritual practice, you know? When you compare it to an athlete, look at how many athletes retire and then they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Now what? You know? So I feel like even even if you did make that choice, you you know, two weeks later, you'd be wherever you are okay what club do i need to you know was who are the big musicians here where do i go and yeah what i mean totally and i don't see myself quitting i don't see myself stopping at this point i hope not so you left high school did you go straight to mount hood i went to mount hood my mom almost killed me i had like these like scholarships to the good you know the good universities unquote and I was like, no, I want to go to the community college for the jazz program. And mom's like, ah. Well, they had a they had a really good jazz program. It was they? yeah, it was prestigious. Dave Bardoon is a great teacher. Anyway, so my mom actually, we went to a few of those schools. She was like, no, you're right. This is where you should be. But yeah, right after high school, I moved to Oregon. I was there for two years and did sort of my basic music theory and all that stuff. And then did you go straight from there to Canada? 2000 to 2002, I was in Oregon. And then I moved to Canada right after because Louise Rose had done a workshop with our choirs. And she asked me if music was what I wanted to do in my real life. I was like, yes, that's exactly how she phrased it. She said, well, you should consider coming to study with me. When somebody like that says, come train with me, what does that entail? Are you watching them perform? Are you literally sitting in a yeah. room with a piano going over things? Like, what is that like? I think it's different with everybody, but um, definitely lessons, really intensive one-on-one lessons. So for about two years, when I first moved there, I had weekly lessons. Then it's, they started to be spread out a bit more. And with Louise, she always, her approach is, I can't know 
your, how does she say? I can't know your relationship to music without knowing your relationship to yourself. Honestly, David, it was like a, it was like a counseling session. She had this (laughs) magical house and these magical like China with, um, you know, strawberries on them and we would have tea and I would just ball my head off. I would literally just cry. (laughs) And then it'd be like, okay, and now for part two, let's go sing. Um, I'm beginning to see the light. You know, she'd ask me questions like, what does it look like to be an artist? If you weren't going to make money from this ever, would you still want to do it? Like she would put these questions to me that as a 20 year old, I was like, eh, you know, answered sort of simply. Mm -hmm. And then like, you know, at this age, I continue like randomly to just reflect on some of those really very simple questions that she asked me. And then she really focused on um, building artistry and learning tunes, obviously. So the second hour was in this small room full of books and a grand piano building my repertoire. So she'd give me a song and I might sing that song and then we would stop and and she would ask me about it. She'd ask me about how I felt or like, what did that mean to me? What did this lyric interpretation essentially? Yeah. I'd sing it again, maybe three, four, five times. And she'd be like, okay, that's great. Now do it differently. You know, I was like, wait, what? (laughs) You know, so it was, (laughs) it was really this exercise in expanding my expression through singing. Because I remember we hung out a couple times after I got out of the Navy, which was like 2004-ish, 2005-ish. And I do, I think yeah, in, in Idaho, yes, right? Yeah. Yeah. We even saw each other once, I think when I was, we hung out in like Seattle or something like that. But right. I do remember meeting up with you, you know, that two or three years later and being like, this is a completely different person. Like this is, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Moving to Canada, I, I always say it was almost like people that, you know, like their journey to the Mecca or like their four years in India or whatever. Like to me, that's what Victoria BC was. And I mean, I know, you know, yeah. I went through a major physical transformation. I lost like 150 pounds or something in the course of two years. And that really just came from learning how to care for myself as an adult, yeah. you know, and and like being around this community of, of really empowered middle-aged women at the time who were like my best friends. And so I learned about like resting and I learned about actually really listening. What really fascinates me that I want to know, especially for a jazz blues singer, is you had touched on how when she was educating you, it would be literally grabbing books of music and learning specific songs. Mm -hmm. I'd always wondered that, but is that a lot of jazz training is just needing to know the thousands and thousands of standards that there are so that if you're in a place and somebody's like, like, uh, we're going to play, you know, is you is got it. This note, this note, this note, this note. Yes. So that is the way I would express that is that the great American songbook, mm-hmm. it's a language, right? So we have this common set of tunes that we all know. I know the melody to it. I know the words to it. They know the changes to it. So I can go to a jam session and say, I want to do um, just in time in a flat. And everybody's like, cool, we got you. So yeah, it's absolutely um, the ground that we all stand on. Obviously, there's tunes that are more obscure and whatnot. But That's a huge part of cutting your teeth on those songs and learning how to find your way too. because, you know, Ella Fitzgerald sang Blue Skies. It's like, does anyone ever need to sing Blue Skies again? (laughs) You can look at it that way. But but you can also be like, okay, so then what what is my that whole that whole point is like putting yourself into those tunes. But yeah, that's exactly right. What you said, all these popular standards and compositions that we all learn. And it's a lifetime of learning. So when you're gigging, especially back when you're playing five, seven shows a night, A week, is it, not a night. Or I'm, <laughs> like, that's not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> five, seven a week. I probably have to uh, five it, sets in a night at some point, but. Is it typically with the same combo? And how do you pick 
the songs you're going to play? Is it like, hey, I'm really into this song this week? Right. The trios change, and especially in New York, because it's so saturated with great musicians and everybody's so busy. Basically, I have like a pool of great musicians that I can always draw from. It depends on the gig, right? So if it's a show, say at Birdland, I probably have a set list. And I'm probably doing arrangements that I've sent them in advance. And I've been like, this is what we're doing. And these are my originals. And here's an arrangement of On a Clear Day. I want you to learn it. If I'm playing a restaurant or if I'm playing at a place where the culture is to to sort of improvise, then I call tunes. It's usually a mix of that. Did you start fully gigging when you were in Canada or did you not start full-time gig until you were in New York? It's actually reverse. I was gigging a lot in Canada and then I moved to New York Mm. and I had no gigs. Really? (laughs) Yes. How hard was it to just show up in New York and be like, I'm a badass singer. Who wants to play with me? Holy shit. Wait, uh, how hard on a scale of one to 10, like a 15, where you're like, I'm a dumbass for even attempting this. What am I doing here? I was so depressed initially because came from this big fish small pond beautifully supportive community and I was getting paid there like I was actually doing these private gigs and yeah could organize a concert and have 150 people come at the age of 24 25 moved to New York and it's like girl nobody cares nobody knows <laughs> you nobody like get in line you're at the bottom of the barrel at this point and this place is saturated with talent yeah oh and also the gig economy here is like, um, you can pay us to play. You want to play? Yeah, you can out of pocket pay your musicians. We'll take the tips, you know, whatever. I mean, some of these early gigs were just disasters in that sense. That's the training ground. That's the city. How do you get your foot in the door? Was it just a you're trying to get to a person a day? Was there one specific moment where... You got a show that you... I wish. So was it really just a slog (laughs) for years of I'm slowly starting to... It's still a slog. Social media can be such an illusion. And they're like, oh my God, you've made it. It's Taylor Swift. It's welcome to New York. Right. (laughs) I'll give myself proper credit that I have certainly come up and and have a good career but it's an illusion like it's really hard here most of the gigs that even even some prestigious gigs it's very difficult to make a living doing this in new york city i actually make the majority of my income outside of new york city playing festivals or playing um private shows or playing jazz clubs outside of the city my experience was that there are like tears and i mean t-i-e-r-s there's tears from your eyes but there are also (laughs) many tears you know you get here you're at the bottom you're paying to play you're schlepping for five hours to get to a gig that's an hour and pays you a hundred dollars whatever the more you're out there the the quote-unquote exposure gigs yeah that's how you start to meet people. And so then there's the next one that's like, okay, it's maybe $50, but it's two hours in a restaurant and I have to bring my own stuff, but oh it's okay, you know, and I get fed. And then the <laughs> next one is like, cool, there's like an actual PA system and it's $150 or whatever. New York has such a reputation that it's an illusion in the sense that those of us working here are like, yeah, these gigs don't pay any more than any gig in Kansas Kalamazoo, City you know, or, but, yeah. but the perception, you played these places that have like, prestige Mm -hmm. so ironically those are the ones that get you the gigs that that will fly you out that will pay your rent that will put you up in a hotel that you know people have this illusion that this stuff happens overnight and i still get people that are like why aren't you on the voice and oh jesus look a music career can look and listen hey i'm not saying no but i am saying that music careers it's a lifelong pursuit it's a labor of love it doesn't look like how 85% of people think that a music career looks like and success is not defined by being on TV. I feel like I have a successful music career, but I've never won a 
I know I, I well I won one vocal competition, but I never have you know like way I'm to not drop like, that in there, Emily. Hey, <laughs> I did get in there, you know. I was gonna been, ask you about it. It's been so long ago. I still will. <laughs> you know what? I'm going through that exact same thing right now with my daughter. My daughter just turned seven. She sees these shows. You know, I just I want to get on there so I can sing for a hundred million people and then I'm famous. It's like, <gasps> you no. Know, if you want to do this, you work hard. You go train. You yeah. go gig for these musicians that actually paying your dues i paid my dues <laughs> like i said this is get off my lawn stuff but <laughs> because of social media and then and shows and stuff like that nobody feels like they have to do that anymore yeah and the concept of wait you're a musician because you're just a musician what what's the end game when are you rich right. when are you right people don't get it it's like no i'm not do i'm doing this because i love doing this yes it's not to get to some end game and that's we all want to be financially stable i'm not saying that like oh, yeah there's also the myth of the i mean not that you're saying this either but it's like there's the myth of like the struggling artist and wow how cool it's you're passionate about it but you don't make money i'm like we're not doing that either <laughs> we're, yeah. we're getting rid of that myth too i recognize that non-musicians don't have a good sense of what success Entails, looks like yeah. and that it can look very 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 different for for different people there is no one model for what success mm -hmm. looks like well to me you know i mean i mean this you are an example of success to me you had your passion you had your thing that you wanted to do since you were a kid and you're doing it and that's it that's all that's what success is oh. so oh my god <laughs> play i'm gonna like record that and play it back because i'm going falling asleep <laughs> and crying one night i'll be like <laughs> <laughs> what year did you move to New York? I was back and forth for a little bit, but 2009. Isn't that the year you recorded Soul Walk? Yes, I had just finished recording, I think. Where did you record mm -hmm. that? I recorded it here. I was back and forth 2008, 2009 at a studio that no longer exists in um, New Jersey. How did you two meet and what made you decide that you wanted to cut an album? Was it just a one day like we should cut an album or was there something more? To kind it? of. Yeah. Again, I feel like in those early days, things were much more simple than they are now. Yeah. <laughs> that one was um, Misha's ex-wife. Her family lived out in Victoria. And so he would come out in the summers and people encouraged me to hire him for those $50 gigs or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he was totally game for it. He's like a good time guy. So I was like, yeah, totally. And then just said like, hey, you should come to New York and I produce albums. I can produce an album for you. It just was so easy. I know this is hard to answer. I am weird and I'm a pain in the ass. So I ask these type of questions. Fantastic. Do you have a favorite song on Soul Walk? Ooh, <laughs> that is a pain in the ass question. How dare you? <laughs> Probably the song that I'm the most proud of is Georgia O'Keeffe. Yes. Probably. That's my favorite song on it. Who wrote that? That was me. That was my sort of baby. And of course, we co-write. Everything yeah. is co-written. But that was like, I wrote the melody. I had that basic structure happening and the weird, like, that was my baby and the lyrics and all that. And then I brought it to Misha and he was like, hell yeah. And he arranged it. So he added, there's a couple solo sections mm -hmm. in there that he added. The Genesis was from my brain. That was probably the easiest song that the process of writing it was probably the easiest. Mm -hmm. And yet it's the one that I feel like I, I'm really happy that that's part of my legacy as an artist. It's just such a cool, it's such Aww. a cool song. How long did Soul Walk take you to make? I think that was the six months to a year. Okay, I want to take one more break and then we're going to be back. And we're going to talk about some new, new stuff. Okay. We will be right back.
song that you just listened to coming in from the last break is Aphelion. This is another song where I'm just going to ask you, what is this song about? That's cool that you that you chose this song. Um, it feels like a little... Love it. A little obscure or something. It is. That's but, what's awesome about um, it. It's, it's so beautiful. This song is about grief. It's about losing my dad specifically, who I lost the same week, within a week of the 2016 election. So Yikes. both of those were devastating personally and collectively i think it was weird so aphelion i had no idea that i was going to write that song which is rare usually i like go back to ideas that i've been writing for a long time but i think it was probably 2017 or 18 um i got this opportunity to go with the friend to an artist retreat so i wrote that song i i was sitting in a chicken shack with a little keyboard which I don't play very well. So I was just sort of staring at it. But I was like, okay, I can figure this out. And I was watching the sun literally like go across the sky. I don't know. I was sort of geeking out on on the planets. Mm-hmm. And this word aphelion came through that I was, I was looking up different words or different phenomenons. And it's basically when the sun is the furthest from the earth. And that actually happens in the summer. Really? Yeah. You would think it'd be the winter, right? The whole concept to me was really healing that no matter how far away you are, there's still warmth and there's still the relationship. You're you're never going away. Like you're never gone. Wow. And that's how that song came well, through. It's written for my dad. Ladies and gentlemen, if that doesn't get you, then you have no heart. And <laughs> that's that. That's, it doesn't get much more beautiful than that. All three of these songs that I have played in the podcast today are from a new album that, as we've discussed, Emily has been working on for a long time. Is there a name for the album? Yes. The album is going to be called Canon and Sparrow. Canon and Sparrow. I like it. Tell me why. That's a lyric in Superhero. And that was another internet rabbit hole. I have no idea how I ended up there, but I found this um, <laughs> Russian saying, I don't know where, don't shoot a cannon into sparrows, which is to say that's overkill. Like yeah. he was a rubber band, right? <laughs> and yeah. why are you trying to kill sparrows anyway? But anyway, <laughs> no, and so it. that became, <laughs> and that became for me a metaphor for devastation. So in the lyric, I said, it's running through you like an arrow, through blood and bone and marrow, a cannon into sparrows. We're only living, breathing beings in the sense of like, we're these delicate things and all these devastating, you know, between war and like the constancy of violence, the hostility and all of that. It just became for me a metaphor of holy shit. This world is really, really difficult. It's difficult to be alive. And we're just trying to have these little beating hearts and these huge things are coming at us left and right. I just kept sort of meditating on that. Like, again, it just sort of stayed in my head. And then it also for me became a metaphor for this artistically what this album is, which is an exploration of the range of my voice, Mm -hmm. of the voice of the human voice. On one hand, it's like, shooting off get out of your head like literally shouting you know and then 
the eight minute ballad that's like the most vulnerable thing I've ever recorded. So I just sort of wanted to explore those. And it also was me asking myself, what does it mean? And what is the value of being a songbird mm. and a singer of love songs in such troubled times? You know, going through this now, because I feel like I didn't write it down and I don't want to forget it. But what year did you make the strength of love video? Is that 19? Yeah. And it was magic. How did that How did that come to be? I'm grateful again to Misha because some of that stuff can be so hard as a band leader to organize and just be like, I'm always like, oh, how am I going to get people into a room together? I don't know. And he was like, we're going to do it. We're going to bring alcohol. <laughs> we're going to bring a band and they're going to learn the tune and we're going to make it a party. <laughs> and and this is the space. So it was in a, um, a bar that actually never opened because of the pandemic. Mm. These musicians learned the tune and the energy in that room was just incredible it felt very live it was like and i was singing live as well you know to the track but we were singing we were playing live and yeah. the audience just everyone in there what i really loved about that video because that's what the song is about everybody getting free and like everybody being represented body size gender race all of those things that room actually was very representative of that just naturally i wasn't like you know we need we need seven black people and six hispanics yeah, yeah. it was like please friends who love music and who know me or don't know me like come out and it was dope it just had the most beautiful energy every single time we maybe did like three takes of that tune and and then we had a big party afterwards that's what it looks like it looks like a camera crew just came into a bar where a quartet was about to start hey everybody <laughs> drunk we're gonna start filming and <laughs> totally that's it <laughs> it's awesome totally so check that out on youtube but back to the album i want to go through who plays on it it's misha who we've talked about a lot piatigorsky yeah piatigorsky we've talked about him which i mean i can keep talking about just the piano is absurd on all of these he's songs. absurd <laughs> that man is it's, such a wild man i love him it's he's like a creative genius madman type but yeah he's he's ridiculous on on piano uh there's also danton bowler yeah so he's the bassist on it who so, i remember seeing i did a really really quick search that he was mentored by uh eugene wright who was from the brubeck quartet you know more so, about danton than yeah. i do <laughs> <laughs> But um, Danton is a badass. And he also, he played with Roy Hargrove. For, oh, did he really? Yes, for a number of years. Good it was very God. sad when he passed. Uh, I, Danton was one of the first people I called because, yeah, he was his bassist for a number of years. Rudy Royston. Ugh, who, can you even? Uh, from what I saw online, and I could be wrong, so correct me, but it looks like Misha and him kind of have their own trio that they play a lot. Yeah, with. actually, Rudy, Danton, and Misha play a lot together. Rudy and Misha play together all the time. And they're like homies. Rudy is one of the best drummers ever on the planet ever. What the hell? <laughs> like so sick. So he's on my first and album it, as well and literally whenever I'd send tracks to like drummers, you know, or like hey, you got to check this too now, it's an MP3 and like people would text me and be like, "What the hell? Who is this?" <laughs> They just would freak out. And the same thing, actually, Boris Kozlov is on that first album. I'm like 25 years old on that album. And they're like the heaviest of heavyweights. <laughs> <laughs> Rudy has this beautiful, yeah. like, it's like there's always this sort of wash happening and movement happening, but it doesn't feel too full and never like oh, it just, he's not very dynamic. All. No, he gives himself a ton of open space yeah. to play around with, which is yeah, no, he's amazing. amazing. And then Freddie Bryant, who is the Pat Smear lookalike. Yeah. who is an awesome guitarist from yep. what I've seen. I've seen a couple videos with him in it. And then Tatum Greenblatt, who plays the trumpet in yeah. the album, who the only thing I saw from him was that he's from Juilliard. So 
you know he's good. <laughs> <laughs> he's good. Um, he was he was with um, Richard Bona for a while. He he's high level. The moral of the story is that the musicians in this are better I mean, than the top, vocalists. Top, top I'm just here. No, <laughs> no, no. They are. The, They're incredible. Is it completed track wise? Yes, you got all of them. So it's ten yeah. tracks. I know that it's been a long time in the making, but how long in the actual studio with the players, song by song? In the actual studio was three days. Really? Yeah. And then what happened was, <laughs> just kidding. So, in, <laughs> so we went into the studio June of 2018. All the tracks laid down. I think actually over two days and the third days was just vocals or something. And Misha did all the editing at home. And I also had like, I had an acute vocal injury, which was, I believe, 2017 in November where all of the wrong elements sort of came together and I injured the lining of my vocal cord, which makes it really difficult to get always sing. But the recovery time, like the next day, my cords would be swollen or I couldn't just sing another gig the next day. So this album was made through that process. There's a lot of stigma about vocal injury, which is so weird because again, with athletes, you're not like you tore your ACL, like you're an idiot. Oh, you mean stigma like people thinking that you did something yes, wrong. Thinking that you don't know how to sing. Really? Right. It's like, I've been doing it for 20 years. But okay, <laughs> it was a question of I had a cold, I had been out, I wasn't hydrated, I flew on a plane, I had a three hour rehearsal, then I had a three hour gig and those elements and it, I didn't feel anything. It wasn't like I had pop or anything like that. It was just that I did some damage to the lining. The recovery from that was also tied into me sort of starting to take vocal lessons again and learning new being like, oh, I have over 20 years developed a tendency of oh. involving my jaw too much or something like interesting. And I also this is a little woo west coasty but i realized that grief had really affected my singing i had never like again that sort of trauma of losing a parent mm -hmm. and i was holding it in my body physically and, and sort of adjusting in ways that wasn't great for sound production so that was a, another contributing really? thing to it so i started taking private vocal lessons i started taking speech i started wow. taking vocal therapy that's kind of also in the mix with this album i'm like super proud of it and i'm super proud of the way that i was able to heal with with the help of a number of people and I could sing I sang through it all like I was still performing through it all and it's very interesting too like learning how many vocalists experience vocal injuries no one talks about it yeah I think no one talks about because they're scared they're not going to get hired for the next thing and it's like my chords are <laughs> yeah. in better shape probably than ever at this point and then also as someone who's not using auto-tune maybe twice two places on the album where it was like the killingest thing and we fixed a little you know we bumped it up a, a quarter of a step mm -hmm. you know those are raw vocals so yeah. getting in the headspace to deliver a really killing vocal in tune and like the way that you want with the right tone. So I'll tell you from an outsider looking in, you can't help when you see an artist, what you naturally do is you compare their art. I look at Soul Walk and then I look at your new album and where Soul Walk is this, I mean, there's there's a lot of emotional great stuff on it, but where it's this kind of fun, really yeah. turn yeah. it on in a party sort of thing. The new one is very sit down with a whiskey and get emotional. It's deep. It just feels like there's so much heart in it. And the harmonizing parts that you found in specific parts of the songs, it feels like you were a lot more emotional 
yeah with these songs and i think that's so your your read of that i really take that to heart because that's how i see it i actually almost see canon and sparrow as a bookend to soul walk into this sort of Mm. decade in new york city I made Soul Walk before I even lived in New York City. And I always say it's like espresso, like very high energy. In fact, some people (laughs) it's like only in doses. And then going through experiencing so much life, growing so much as a vocalist, having a lot of loss as well as many of us also collectively had. Yeah. Yeah. Let me like come back and sort of compliment that, but also speak to that. Thank you for that, because that synthesis is very much how I feel about it. And I'm nervous about it, too, because it is a deeper, more emotionally vulnerable and also their misha and i are always laughing about the eight minute ballad because like well maybe one person will make it through i no. guess you're the one person no. who- thank you so um, much thank you <laughs> i've just got a couple more things to do and then i'm gonna let you have your new york friday night oh this is you're looking at it <laughs> me <laughs> it's so weird because i still have the instinct to go out but it's like oh pandemic do i want to sit in a little tiny room in the basement in like a smaller space than usual even though i'm vaccinated yeah. like mm, not so much <laughs> okay emily yeah to cap this off i'm gonna be a pain in the ass i do this to everybody and they love it so much oh no I am I gonna, oh no is do i have to pick favorites i'm, I'm so bad at favorite oh no <laughs> okay all right i'm real. no i'm so bad at get ready for it, another hour where i'm like well i'm prepared for <laughs> probably no direct answers but i still have to ask them because i want to hear the, <sighs> the gears grinding okay can you hear the? Do you have a favorite vocalist of all time? Oh man, come on. Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, can I give you, you can, three? Yes, absolutely. Maybe four. Yes, Ella Fitzgerald. As, I was say, as long as one of them's Ella, of course you can. Of course. <laughs> Shaka Khan. Oh, nice. Stevie Wonder. Mm-hmm. Donny Hathaway. That's a Mount Rushmore right there. Doesn't get any better. <laughs> but there's than that. so many more. That's not fair, and I hated that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> What's the Aretha Franklin? Oh my God! Sorry, what the hell? I'm editing this out. You didn't even say no. Aretha Franklin. <laughs> when I get to heaven, they're like, "You left Aretha out. You can't come in." <laughs> Do you have a favorite project that you've been a part of? Um, I just love being an instrument for the music. How do I pick a favorite? That's a good answer. Yeah. No, I don't. <laughs> Do you have a favorite gig that you've ever played? Um, I'm gonna go. Remember how I told you I have a bad memory? Yeah. I'm going to go with the most recent. Do it. I was actually going to ask uh, after that, I was going to ask, what is the most recent gig where you were just like, we murdered this place? Okay. Because there's just too many good, good ones, Mm -hmm. just magical nights of music. The most recent was I was a grant recipient for the U.S. Embassy. They have a grant program called the Arts Envoy Program, where it's a cultural exchange. And I got to go to Cape Verde, which is off the coast of West Africa, and perform with a local group there. And our chemistry was amazing. And the concert was really incredible musicianship wise and just energy wise under a Cape Verdean sky. Um, I sang in English, Spanish, Portuguese and Creole. Okay. Okay. We get it. Um, we get it. No, which is to say, <laughs> shut up. Which is to say like, to me, language and music are so connected. And that was peak life experience for me where I was just like, this is what I meant to do. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite standard? Right now it's on a clear day. Mm. I love the arrangement that's on the album is very spacious. And I love that because it allows me to really sing those lyrics yeah. on a clear day, rise and look around you. And you'll see who you are on a clear day, how it will astound you that the glow of your being outshines every star. You'll feel part of every mountain, sea and shore. You can hear from far and near a world you've never heard before. And on a clear day, on a clear day, 
you can see forever and evermore. Well, that is going to be our tag for the episode. <laughs> There's that. Do you have a song that you're always asked to play that you are maybe a little bit tired of playing? You know what? Sometimes songs like, um, for me, some of the hardest ones are the songs like Respect, which is to say oh. that it's like vocally challenging, but it's also like, <sighs> but it's, it's, you know, it's sacred. It's sacred. It's, yeah. And unless I'm putting some kind of spin on it. So like for me, the ones that carry the most pressure and I'm the least comfortable with are the ones that are most well known. Okay. I'm glad you said that because there is a song on the new album that to me, when I started it, because I wasn't looking at the titles of the songs. I just had my ear things in at work. That started and I was like, wait, the brass cojones I know. that it would take to cover that song. Yeah, We're talking about How Will I Know by Whitney Houston. Mm -hmm. There's a cover of it and it's this amazing, slower, augmented jazz version. That's a compliment is it's almost hard to explain the genre that it is. Mm -hmm. But what was the thought process of, wait, should I do this? Should I not? Because there had to be a little bit of that, right? Totally. And I guess for me, the process was that Misha was showing me that arrangement. I, I told him that's like one of my favorite songs. I oh, I'm a huge Whitney stan and I'm an 80s baby. So well, it's Whitney. It's she's one of the great. Yeah, it's Whitney. It, yeah. That reminds me of my childhood and like makes me really happy. The reason why I did feel okay. And actually I don't get so intimidated by it is because it's so different. It's such a it is unique take of that song. And I always like people at my show, I'm like, I'm not trying to sound like Whitney. I'm just paying tribute to one of the greatest voices. And one of these songs that like for me was in my formative years made me so happy. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think you can pick and choose. And I think when you do like cover a tune like that, you've got to have something about it. Your technical prowess has to be out of this yeah. world. Amazing. Or the arrangement has to be super special and unique and, well, you know. Both. It's definitely both. When you play when you play that <sighs> live, does it bring the house down? It does. People And yeah. people love to hear it. Yeah. I don't usually say what tune it is before I start. I just say, like, I'm paying tribute to one of the greatest voices. In the, you How know? long does it take people to realize what it is? Usually those first three notes. Oh, really? Yeah. I picture you being in a hall and, and getting to the very first line of the chorus and people being, oh, what? That's yeah, no, so it's cool. usually it's usually right away. If you weren't a singer, what instrument would you play in a trio or a quartet? Oh, I want to be a drummer so bad. <laughs> Everybody wants to be a drummer. So bad. <laughs> <laughs> like it's, yeah, I want to be a drummer. Do you have a favorite venue either that you've played at or that you've frequented? Or yeah, right now I would say 55 Bar. It's right next to the Stonewall Inn in Manhattan. And that's partly because it's a musical home for me. They really embraced what mm -hmm. I do, which is a weird, eclectic mix of things. And some venues are always trying to shave the edges off. Like, okay, you're just doing straight ahead yeah. or you're just doing original. And I feel like 55 Bar was like, you holy expressed is exactly what we want. It's really essentially a dive bar with golden lights all over the place. And it's don't look at the ceiling because it kind of looks like it's going to fall in. And like, <laughs> you know, it, it, it really feels like it's aged with the magical sonic vibrations that have resonated within those walls. You feel it when you walk in that place. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's just, I love it. I feel, I love that. It's very small, but it's like people come from around the world to hear music there. So is it the, the big name clubs in New York, the Blue Note or Standards or places like that? Are those the ones that they're pretty picky or are those the ones at high end? You, you know, you got here, you just do what you do. I think it varies. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you're a superstar and you're playing the Blue Note, they're not going to, yeah. I guess just to like clarify that in New York jazz, quote unquote, 
which a lot of people, I don't know if you've this conversation about getting away from using the word jazz and calling it black American music. Oh, really? Yeah. There's a whole, I, I, there's a whole thing. So I'm over in the Northwest, Emily. I don't, <laughs> I don't know um, that at all. Things are so specialized in New York because the scene is so extensive that, for example, like the kind of set I would do in smalls is different than the kind of set I might do at Blue Note late night session which is different than the kind of set I might do at Smoke, which is different. Like, So it's not that they ask you to, but it's like when you play at a venue that's prestigious like that, you want to contribute to that particular conversation. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Smalls. That's one of my venues of I've never been but need to go sort of Bro, places. come, so, let's go. Yeah. That's my haunt. Um, that's my hang. Really? Yes. Oh, good God. Is there a venue that you haven't played yet that you want to? So many. Besides like Carnegie Hall. Yeah, Carnegie Hall's on the list. <laughs> I'm happy with what I've done so far, but for me, it's mostly like international festivals. Mm. You know, I'd love to play like the Montreux Jazz Festival. I'd love to do some of those internationally recognized major names, but also emerging act. That is my dream is to sort of travel around and, and be more... I've had a few of those, but like more in the international festival scene. Those are all the, I'm not going to make you answer anymore. What else? Do you Aren't like you? cheese? Or yeah, do you like? <laughs> Aren't you happy? <laughs> Emily Braden at Songbody on Insta. Emilybraden.com. Watch for the new album. It's coming. We're months away. That's right. Yes, yeah. that's right. And keep rewinding this episode and, and listening to the little bits because that's all you get for now in your face go to Bandcamp and before her new album hits go to Bandcamp and buy soul walk it's a great album emily i love you i it's, love you too it's been so good to talk to you you too and get to new york or philly north carolina sometimes in idaho wherever i put everything on my website so hopefully Hopefully it can connect with some folks that way. Go to her website, get on the map. Seriously, I can talk and talk about her music. We can play her albums, but until you see her live, you're not going to know. That is it for this episode. Join us next week. We are doing our second listener-supported episode where we have a avid listener come on and talk about his favorite album of all time, which is a Counting Crows album what? from Mark. Oh, yeah. nostalgia. I'll talk about it. I know. Mark's <laughs> coming on to talk recovering the satellites. So, Emily, you're one of my favorite people of all time. I am so glad that you've made this a career, and I'm proud to call you a friend. Oh, I'm so glad we've stayed connected, too, when I found your dog tags in my house. I was just I like, know. oh. So... <laughs> like, yeah. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next week. On a clear day Rise and look around you And you'll see who you are On a clear day How it will astound Your being outshines every star you feel part 
Clean. 